What Would Ben Do is an invitation to join five entrepreneurial friends at that loud table in the corner. Meet Ryan Ben, Matt Breach, Charles Chang, Richard Pollock, and Ian Walker, and hear their frank discussions on the unique challenges and triumphs of building a business in the dynamic natural products industry. Welcome to What Would Ben Do? Uh, another episode. Um, so tonight, of course, as usual, we've got Ian Walker, Ryan Ben, Charles Chang, Matt Breach, um, all here to share our insights. So tonight's episode is really on the David and Goliath dynamic and how everyone who's an entrepreneur eventually will face their own Goliath at some point. So what we were hoping to do tonight is each one of us share a David and Goliath um, story uh, and how it affected our business. Um, and basically, we're going to discuss it amongst ourselves. And hopefully, the stories that we have on facing our own uh, business Goliaths uh, will help you guys in some way uh, in your journey, or at least hopefully you'll find it insightful. But anyway, uh, with that, and you'll excuse my dog barking in the background, um, I'd like to um, introduce... I love how uh, you're talking about it. Yeah, well, speaking of uh, Goliath, Goliath. I can't see it, but I've got a 175-pound uh, dog with me here uh, named Herschel, who's a bit of a Goliath, but also in his head, uh, a bit of a David, too. So uh, <laughs> there you go. Uh, so we've got that dynamic going. Um, so anyway, with that, um, anybody want to share, uh, one of their David and Goliath stories? Ian, how about you? Sure. Yeah. And sorry for interrupting. I just had to comment on, uh, Herschel there. Cause he was like, anybody listening, he's like literally licking the side of Richard's face while he's doing the presentation. And I was like, Oh my God, I got to say something here. Speaking of Goliaths. Um, <laughs> so, uh, just to, just to take, take people back, um, so I have I have two businesses in one. I have a, a manufacturing brand business under the Hippie Snacks brand, and I have a distribution business under Left Coast Naturals. Um, and so on the manufacturing side of the brand, when I launched, I knew that I couldn't compete against the regular, you know, Frito Lay uh, Pepsi's of the world in the snack department. So when we got into snacks, we realized, hey let's figure out a way to differentiate ourselves and create subcategories because we knew we couldn't compete in, you know, I wasn't going to compete in potato chips and, and, and tortilla chips. I had to do something different. So we focused, we, we ended up focusing, this is mid nineties and I'm kind of uh, that dude. So we started focusing on the organic side of things at the time there was literally no organic snack options available. So we started by bringing organic snack options. So we were the first certified organic popcorn the first certified organic trail mix, the first certified organic granola. So in those days, it was easy because it was an immature industry. We said, well, let's bring these things that people know in conventional foods and bring an organic version. So sort of the strategizing to differentiate were easy in those early days because there was wide open swaths of territory. But the premise still sits. You look for an open space that maybe isn't big yet, but could be big. And, um, and so that's really where we realized we didn't want to compete against Pepsi. We'd rather create our own sub-segment as a manufacturer. 
So I love that rich, uh, Ian, I'm gonna riff off that one. The power of focus and being very, very narrow and very deep with what makes you different or unique is so critical for the David taking on the Goliath. So the big guys have all the assortment, have all the best shelf space, have, have the lowest prices and costs and so forth. How do you compete against that? It, it, it was you know, how I looked at it when I first started. It was to be super focused and super narrow. We only had one product. We educated the crap out of that one product. And we really, really made sure that we could differentiate ourselves on some level because otherwise, how do you compete against the, the, the giants, right? So in some ways, us not having the resources actually helped us be super focused and sort of carved out a little niche for ourselves. Uh, you know, before Vega, I sold colostrum, which is the primo fluid all female mammals produce prior to birth. Like, go try and do that again. <laughs> but uh, but that hyper focus is what got us off the ground and and put food on our table. But you know, if you're if, when you're competing, if you play in their playground under their rules, you're in trouble. So if you can be in a different mindset in the consumer, so that you're not getting price comparisons, you're not getting shelf space combating, you know, so that you can kind of carve out your own space before they even notice that you're there. Um, you know, that's, that's really what you want to try and do. In the early days of my um, entrepreneurship, one of my, one of my favorite books and, and what you guys are talking about reminds me of that, but it's Blue Ocean Strategy, right? And it's, a, it's basically the premise of you go to the complete opposite direction of who your, of your main competitors are going. And, and that opposite direction will end up being the right path. And, and uh, Charles, you mentioned, you know, carve out that niche is the word I was thinking of in my head. But a lot of times it's even on how you do the business, right? Like there's, I think of, you know, somebody that we're all really familiar with in, in our business, which is the independent health tailor and watching how they, um, by gravitational pull, feel like they oftentimes have to, well, they are competing with the, with the big retailers, but they try to do the same things. They, they try to, you know, base it on distribution, product accessibility, price, when in fact the big distributors, the big uh, grocers are trying to figure out how to be more nimble, understand their audience more, give a more intimate shopping environment. And, and those are actually the competitive advantages for the David in this case, in terms of retail. And they can be hyper effective in doing that. I mean, the birth of Whole Foods was in, in doing that amazingly well, um, which most of us benefited from, from the growth of Whole Foods. So, um, so for those listening, I think uh, a, a great reference is that Blue Ocean Strategy, Renee Balborn, it's, it's, it's a fantastic book. Well, and I, and I think, you know, that comes back to it. I think you said the right word there, strategy, in that, you know, that I think even as a young 25-year-old, I knew that there was no way I could compete on the, on, on the same turf. Like even when we got, for example, into distribution with the left coast side, we knew we're not going to be more efficient than the big distributors because they've got, you know, good efficiencies in the warehouse. They've got lots of trucking. I'm not going to beat them on that side. So like you say on the blue ocean, go the other way and service the crap out of it, not only servicing the retailers, but also remembering that you have vendors that you buy from. And if you can service them really well by being a broker, distributor, brand manager, all rolled into one and, and, and only have a few SKUs, but really sell the crap out of them, that was how we got into distribution. And same with, we were like, you know, everyone else is just dropping at the back door I see that Frito-Lay as a chip distributor, they've got guys merchandising the shelves. Like, why can't we do that with natural foods? So our, and we couldn't afford many people. So with one hire, we'd get a truck driver and a sales rep. 
So, because we couldn't afford two people, we could only afford one. So we'd hire that dude. He'd go to the store. He'd he'd like quadruple our order because he'd check the shelves, realize there was no, nothing on the shelves that they ordered, take it out of the back, write write the order in the back room, put it on the shelf, and we would really upsell and be really effective with the products that we went. But that was the only way we could compete against the big guys. Thanks for that, Ian. And I remember doing that back in the day with beeswax candles. We would uh, go to stores and and you know, be a jobber as it's called, you know, going and filling the shelves and, and bringing in the inventory and so on, writing the orders and, and the stores appreciate it, right? You know, you're helping them out and you build a relationship. I do think that <clears throat> people get obsessed by competing directly against the established player. And that's usually a big mistake um, as Sun Tzu would tell you, but it's uh, kind of like I learned that when I was snowboarding, you know, and I wanted to go in the glades and, and snowboard between the trees. And I get all obsessed about looking at the trees because I'm trying to avoid the trees. So I just ski right into a tree, you know, so you got to teach yourself to like look at the gap between the trees and then voila, you just kind of glide, glide through. You know, there is, I, I think that there's like, when you go after niche markets, the, the, the flip side is that if you go after too much of a micro niche, then you find out that you only have like an audience of six people and then your sales aren't going to be very big. So you got to find that sweet spot where it's like, Small enough to be different from what, the, you know, the big players are doing, but not so small that there's no potential, you know, and finding that sweet spot is easier. It's, it's like what we're trying to do with this podcast. If we hit six listeners, we go to the small niche and into a big one. Six, exactly. We should just invite them on the call with us, the six uh -huh. people, you know, we just have expand the conversation. Richard, this is, this is very near and dear to you, because uh, you've done all kinds of crazy David stuff. Why don't you share some of your, uh, some of your stories. Uh, well, hey, thanks, man. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. There are quite a few, but the one that's sort of most germane today to me um, is the journey I began um, seven years ago with NRC. So my entire sort of a big chunk of my professional career from 28 to, uh, um, to 32 was, uh, or sorry, yeah, 28 to to 42 pardon me uh so i'm dating myself uh was building was building a brand that i had a license for i didn't have equity i had a license which was a little bit of equity but my biggest fear the entire time um was uh the company being sold me losing my license and my livelihood and something that you know i built this brand emergency in canada from the trunk of my 300 driving around store to store you talk about um doing your own job or matt and and Ian, um, you know, filling store shelves at Whole Foods and Finlandia, um, being everything from, um, you know, order taker to warehouse guy to uh, importer to everything, um, and building up a really significant brand in the country and then losing it. And sort of, you know, one of the things that um, I've always been focused on in my life is being in control of my own destiny. And at that point, I wasn't. So, I sort of took off, had a little bit of dough, went with my wife to my spiritual homeland, which is Hawaii, and I was reading a Harvard Business Review article on water. And I don't, and this is sort of the ultimate David and Goliath bit is that in, in um, water is now the biggest beverage category in the world. It's not a good category because of what it does, what it does to an environment. But in 1982, there was one water on the market. It was Evian. And it was a cosmetic product. Uh, people used to spray it on their face. 
Well, fast forward, and it's now an 18 to $20 billion a year market. And, you know, I think it has more coolers and inconvenience and in grocery than, than soda. But a light bulb went off in my head, and I said, here's this product that, that I thought was good and I really liked, but I knew that I could make something better. The problem was is that it was bought by the world's largest pharmaceutical company. So what was I going to do, me, with my you know, Richard Pollock resources, uh, go up against the world's largest pharmaceutical company? And so I sort of turned around and I said, I'm going to do something that Ian alluded to. I'm going to make something that was good and make it great. And from taking, you know, standard synthetic ingredients, creating much of an, as much of a natural profile, really going back to the retailers and saying, I'm not going to lower my price. I'm actually going to be a higher priced item. But I know that in the process, you guys have lost your margins. So how do I contribute back to you, give you better margins, give you a better product, and really work in that sort of very small way where, you know, I sat down with Charles and one of the best pieces of, pieces of advice he gave me is focus on getting turns in a few stores, really, you know, the sales per distribution point, really get that rolling. Don't go everywhere at once, really get those stores turning, get them telling your story, get other buyers seeing that and you'll expand out from that. And, you know, really scary going against these, this gigantic CPG company, as I said, the largest pharmaceutical company in the world. But it really gave us some major advantages um, on the resources we didn't have because we had to think outside of the box. We had to break the rules. We had to turn around and, and be very different. And we didn't have to, we only had to be better and fight. I like to tell my team all the time, I want to be the Viet Cong as opposed to the US Army. Pick your little battles, fight them, get back down, and um and, and win the day yeah really yeah. tactics I, I think you raise a really good point there around understanding um the actual retailers needs so you talked about sort of how you can improve their margins because maybe you start getting you saw that there was a category becoming a bit more commodity with lower prices lower margins and and you saw okay well if i can create a higher value product a higher uh, with, with with additional criteria in it that i can charge more and that they can get greater gross margin dollars and that really solves a problem for them so i like how you're tying what the retailers are with how you can differentiate when you can do those two at the same time is really when you're successful because you might have something different and better but maybe the retailer doesn't give a shit or you can do something for the retailer, but it actually doesn't help you. <laughs> so you got to take into consideration both. Yeah, Charles. Charles wants to add something. Yeah, I want to riff off that because one of the key things I see with uh, uh, not just not just small brands, but all brands is, you know, this overly obsessive thought around how much did I sell in, and and my answer to that is I don't care how much you sell in; it's how much you sell through, because if you take the responsibility for selling your stuff off the shelves of your retailers. Now you're part of that retailer. Now you're, now you're seeing the way, the way the, the retailer sees it, the way the customer sees it. You're not just like, well, I sold it in. That's, that's all it is. You're seeing it all the way through, which makes you have to be very in tune with the customer is, how that retailer uh, supports that customer, how you support the retailer, and all that knowledge and understanding um, is, what, is what really matters. And early on when you're little, you can do that better than the big guys who don't really have that. They're not as in touch with their customers. You can be super 
uh, in touch. So I find that's really valuable. So that's that we call velocity. And what uh, Richard was saying earlier on, if you focus on velocity, on narrow breadth of SKUs, instead of like how much you sell into such a broad number of SKUs or a broad number of stores, you'll typically do better um, as David that way. Love it. That's yeah. great, Charles. Don't sell two, sell three. And then you're a partner, right? Then now you're a partner. You're helping them uh, build a category and, and build a premium category and they get more dollars and that, that's what they need to do in their plan. And they're looking, they, you know, retailers, <clears throat> they got a thousand people showing up trying to flock some product to them, but they don't have nearly enough people showing up and wanting to be their partner and help build a business together. I think that that's really a key point, and that's where you sort of win is when you're coming in as a small guy. you got to remember that all of these retailers are human beings, and they all want to hear your story. And the story of the smaller entrepreneur with uh, better for you, uh, not only for the consumer but for the retailer, it's a story they want to hear, and it's a story that they want to support every single time. Um, it's rare you won't find it. Yeah. Yeah, I think when when you are the David in this in this scenario, uh, like the Goliath, they may you know think their shit doesn't stink or they that you know they they've got everything figured out. When you're the David, you realize that you don't have answers to everything, and you talk to people and you're kind uh, in how you approach the retailers. Like I know we've all like definitely I know Charles and and Matt and I and I know Richard, you've definitely pounded the pavement. All of us have like pounded the pavement across this country and into the U.S. visiting tiny retailers and talking to them. You know, we've all got. I remember Charles, you talking about going up to North Bay and hitting this place, and you know, and you have those conversations, and those are deep relationships that pay back later. People remember that stuff, and um, but you're doing it because you are the small guy and you have to, <laughs> and that ends up becoming your advantage because that builds relationships. That's awesome. Hey, um, oh, Ryan, go ahead. I'm just curious. I'm going to ask a couple of maybe tough questions because I'm, I'm curious uh, for myself as, as well as the listeners. But, you know, we've, we've referenced a lot about the, the retail dynamic and, and, uh, and those are the customers for CPG, obviously, which is the relevance for, for most of us on, on the call, etc. So, so what do you guys think about the consolidation of independent retail and the fact that independent retail, who's really... I think the sustainable ally for entrepreneurs in CPG and the fact that we're letting independent retail erode on itself and, and a focus on direct to consumer and, and on uh, large FDM, it feels a little bit like the road might be different for, uh, for entrepreneurs who are looking to launch in CPG right now and, and, and don't have that independent retail network to help build the brands. I'm curious what your thoughts are. I mean, I I think that uh, those independent retailers don't follow this David and Goliath story well enough in that, you know, and I know, Matt, you're talking to them a lot about this kind of stuff. Like they're trying to emulate the, the, the large retailers. So, you know, it ends up being a race to the bottom on price. They're like super conscious of what's the price everywhere else. They're, they're super tracking what's going on deal everywhere else. They want to have the same products as those guys which to me is the exact wrong strategy. You got to go like, they're going left, you go right. You know, higher service, more education, products that, you know, new products that aren't available in the large CPG or large grocery chains. Like, I think there's a very clear playbook sitting right there. And for some reason, um, there's just such an attraction to that common one. And Matt, you're going to have for sure stuff to say about this. I think this. Uh, the world of retail is going 
through a lot of changes right now, obviously, you know, with COVID and just what's happening and, and, you know, we're seeing that there's a ton of small retailers all over the place from bars and restaurants to nail salons to independent health food stores that are, you know, having to shut down, having higher expenses, you know, they're, they're locked down this, locked down that. And, you know, those small businesses, that's like 50% of the economy, 50% of the jobs and Costco's open, you know, Walmart's open. These guys are operating and it's, uh, it, it's actually, this whole thing is accelerating right now. Uh, it's going to be probably become a huge political issue uh, in the next couple of years, realistically, um, because it is, you know, the ecosystem, you can't only have huge trees. You got to have all the little ferns and the little, and, you know, in defense of the larger players, I don't think they want to see all the small players disappear. I think they actually would like to see a thriving up and coming independent, you know, retail and supplier ecosystem because they know that's where the innovation comes from. You know, they're, they're, they're just trying to focus on the bottom line and, and grind out their 2% growth or whatever. They're not, they're not really growing the category. They're not necessarily, that's not their, their, their strength. And so they need those, those, you know, young entrepreneurs coming along and shaking things up and having great ideas. And the whole health food store movement was all about that, right? You know, a lot of the people got into health food stores, they weren't doing it because they wanted to make a bunch of money. They got into it because they wanted to keep, help people be healthier. And so... Yeah. So it goes back to like the mission and purpose. And I, I'm looking forward to it. You know what? The next five years, there's going to be a whole bunch of innovation that's going to come out. And there's going to be a whole bunch of entrepreneurs that are going to figure this out. And they're going to, they're going to, you know, they're going to upset the whole business model again. But it's, it's going to be tough sledding for a little while here. Hey, um, anybody else want to share one of the stories? Um, Charles, you want to, you want to jump in or Matt? Big long pause. Uh, I kind of told my story earlier on, but I can I can uh, go on a bit more. Um, I think that people are such a huge differentiator when you're little, uh, and when you're David going up against Goliath, um, you know the quality of service, like Ian was saying earlier, but just like having a very people-centered approach to everything, a human-centered approach to everything, versus being you know the big companies sometimes you treat, get treated like a number. Um, Anything you can do to really make people feel special and your customers feel uh, unique and, and satisfied, I think is, is probably the most important thing. Um, and uh, it's amazing what relationships can get you. And when you're selling directly and you're small, you can have the best relationships with your customers that can't be replicated by just employees at other large companies, I find. So that'd be my area of focus. How about you, Ryan? You haven't said too much around it. and. Yeah, for sure. And I want to reiterate what Charles just said there as well, outside of asking that challenging question about retail, because I just, uh, I wonder about that myself. Um, I agree. I mean, I think that um, the success of, of our small business was largely predicated around um, really strong partnerships that, uh, that our competitors weren't able to accomplish. We were so mission driven in what we were doing um, and so keen to be partners with our manufacturing partners and our retail partners that that was really a, a key to success. I was going to uh, mention as well, uh, you know, a little bit of a pitfall story in the David and Goliath, but where, you know, Goliath can win um, out of personal experience was, we haven't referenced it before, but I was the, the CEO of Telbon Media Group, which was the parent company for, for live publishing group for a long period of time. And, and we had three divisions. One was the publishing division. The, the other was the largest independent, important word, commercial printer in Western Canada. And the third was our, our marketing products division. And when I took over as, as CEO of the group, 
um, I had the very unfortunate task, but the real task of divesting from the, from the print business. And it really came down to the simple fact that we were the biggest, we were the best at what we were doing. And we had to acknowledge we couldn't win because it was an incredibly capital intensive business in a time where capital was really, really hard to come by and very, very expensive. And we had to divest to that business literally because we could not afford to compete with the big boys in that space. Literally could not afford to be competitive with our, with our product and service mix. In this case, we couldn't afford to buy equipment that other ones could buy that would make them a better supplier so they could provide better quality, better speed, better pricing. And, and there was very little we could do about it. So, you know, I'm not sure the lesson to share through all that. And I thought you guys would help me riff on that a little bit, but I thought from a, a position of fallibility, there was that moment where I, when I went up against Goliath and, and I crushed to the point where in order to save our company, we kind of had to sever the arm to, to save the body. More because you weren't the biggest. You start off by saying you were the biggest. You weren't the biggest. That's why you couldn't do it. Yeah, sorry, Charles. We were the biggest independent, which made us a uh, tiny. Yeah. Sorry, independent was that word, which made us tiny of the scale gotcha. of, of global, you know, publicly traded gotcha. powerhouse monsters. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, but you I, sort of had that. Oh, sorry, Matt. Go ahead. Uh, well, I was just thinking about, you know, you guys, like strategy, you know, it's, 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 it's not so much about what you do. It's about what you don't do and what you choose not to do. And that takes a huge amount of discipline. So I commend you, you guys, I remember that time, that was super stressful. Uh, you were having some real drama there and uh, we were being on a, like a little tiny airplane with you and you were kind of telling me about this and it was like a really scary flight and then you were kind of scared about your business and anyway, and you, you navigated through it, but you had to make that tough decision and, uh, and you did it, uh, but it's hard to do. It's, it's really hard to say no to stuff. Like that's actually the most important skill is just saying no. Like, no, we don't do this. No, we don't do that. Well, why don't we do this? And you get a lot of pressure from a lot of different uh, stakeholders, employees, customers. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. And you want to say yes. You want to be the nice guy. You want to be like, yeah. But, you know, a lot of the time you need to be saying no. And I wish I'd said no more often, quite frankly. Well, Matt, I think you have a great story around that, around your strategy with your distribution business, right? When you guys yeah. started and you started to get a reputation in the industry, you all of a sudden had all these uh, body care companies and supplement companies. Everyone wanted you guys to distribute. They're like, wow, these guys service really well. And you had the opportunity to kind of blow up. And you guys said no. You, you could have you taken on hundreds of brands, but you didn't. And you changed your strategy. Can you talk about that a bit? Because I think that's a really interesting yeah, story. Thanks, and yeah, I, uh, I, yeah, that was going back uh, 10 plus years ago. And we did have a lot of different brands that we were distributing. But the thing was, is that these brands were all sort of commodities for us. There's five distributors, you know, selling the same product and, you know, everybody wanted, uh, you know, uh, tall grass service, but they didn't necessarily want to pay the, you know, a price because they wanted, the, they wanted the, the best price. And it was like kind of price service quality pick too. Right. And so we we're like, well, we're all about quality and we're all about service. So we're not necessarily going to be the rock bottom cheapest price on the market. Um, and so we really had to find partnerships with brands that, there was a value add for us for our model and it was it didn't fit for everybody we had to be like okay who what brands really need a lot of service and a lot of love a lot of tlc uh, to, to really be successful and, and what brands kind of just sell themselves and and it's, it's a different it's a different transactional model and so understanding where we wanted to play uh was important and we did give up literally millions of dollars in business uh and we we ended you know uh, respectfully, but we ended, uh, you know, relationships and business partnerships with brands that 
didn't fit that model. And so that was tough to give up revenue. But I think, you know, in the long run, we were able to grow a lot more because we made that decision and just focused on um, exclusive partnerships where we were really able to add some value. Yeah, it cracks me up. You like you shrunk your portfolio by, by like half, but then grew and gain more profit like you know i think it's this counterintuitive thing that people don't always think Less about it's more <laughs> yeah i mean it, it's interesting on the analogy and i'm not a religious guy but if you think back to the david and goliath story i mean it's essentially him throwing down his shield him throwing down his armor him throwing down his sword and grabbing a little slingshot and winning the day and i mean that sort of talks to ryan's story talks to Matt's story, talks to Ian's story, talks to my story, talks to Charles' story too. It's just like, if you're able to just focus on that one thing and really be agile in that, um, you can win the day. Yeah. I think um, along that agility one, something that was occurring to me when, when we were talking about the, the independent retailers and a couple of your stories is that um, that agility shows up in the fact that you may have one strategy that you go into the marketplace with, but then that strategy will not always win the day forever. You know, so all of our products came out and then all of a sudden, for example, we launched organic versions of products and then the organic market became more mature and those organic popcorn became a commodity. And so the people are selling it. So then how do you adapt to be keeping ahead of the curve? Just like uh, natural retailers, they had a lot of those sort of niche products that the big retailers didn't look at. But once those mature, those markets matured and those products became more in demand and the bigger retailers started to carrying it, the smaller retailers didn't know how to adapt because that strategy that worked 10 years before wasn't working anymore. And so I think that's a really critical one for like guys like us that have been around for 25 years. I like there's a 1.0, 2.0 and a 3.0 for my businesses on how I've had to now adapt the strategy. So, you know, we developed our distribution business being a rack jobber, but then, you know, EDI came in and, and unionization at store and you couldn't write backroom orders or you weren't allowed to touch the shelves anymore. We had to adapt it as a distributor to say, okay, how can we show this kind of service in a different way? And so I think that's a really important thing that people forget that it's a continual process. Go ahead, Charles. To riff off that a little bit, um looking at it from a brand perspective. So back when we had Vega, um, we at one point, you know, after a few years had the best selling supplement out there. We're at all the shelves uh, and flying really well, growing double year over year. And that sounds pretty great. But, um, but one of the things we always had was a healthy paranoia about, well, when people knock us off or come in and make it better, what will we do? Just back to what you said about adaptation, innovation and so forth. So we, our goal was to discontinue our own product before someone else made it obsolete by being better. So, you know, people may or may not know this, we have four versions of Vega. Uh, and every time we replaced, we killed the old one, even though there's already in every circumstance, the best seller in the category, we killed it and replaced it with something else. Um, and uh, in, in a couple of cases, it involved new UPC code. It was like a giant cluster you know what, but um, we felt that by doing that, we wouldn't be sitting there going, well, our formulas are the best forever and someone won't come in and, at your lunch. We're going to eat our own lunch. And I think that mentality around innovation and, uh, and uh, constantly improving is critical for the Davids. Um, and, uh, and that's how you stay ahead of your, your competition, be it the Goliaths or other Davids. <laughs> I thought that was, you know, it took a lot of courage to do that, Charles. You guys did do that. And I think 
you know, it's, a, it's something that I've learned about, you know, really smart uh, marketing people is that they're, they're very self-critical. And, you know, when you're, when you're building a brand and you're good at marketing, you're very self-critical because someone else is always criticizing you anyway. So you better be criticizing yourself, you, you know, uh, before they do, because they're going to, if, if, if you're not, if you're sitting on your laurels, then, you know, they're going to eat your lunch, uh, to use too many metaphors. But uh, yeah, you, you, and you also had the courage to start a brand probably 10 years earlier than the rest of us, which was a really smart move because that was a really good time to build a brand in the health food industry. And then all these big players came in and uh, it got, it, you know, it, 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 the stakes are higher, the, the capital invested is higher and uh, the categories, are, the volumes are bigger. The good news is that more consumers are using, you know, better for you products now. Organic is bigger, sustainable is bigger. It's amazing, right? So we're, we're actually changing the world, but at the same time, um, it's a little daunting to see all these big guys piling in and, and, and buying up a lot of brands and buying up a lot of retailers. And, and so this, this journey continues, this kind of staying nimble and reinventing yourself constantly. It's exhausting. It's a, it takes a lot of energy to be an entrepreneur. You know, you got to get out of bed every day and kill yourself and start over. It's like, oh my gosh. Hey, uh, Ian, go ahead. For her, all I was going to do is a public service announcement to those that can't, that are only listening. The reason that Matt's voice gets really loud is because when he gets excited, he just like leans right in there. One of the things that Charles brought up, which I thought was, uh, was really cool and really important is you can't be the best forever. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't last. And it's like you innovate or you die um, as, as the David. And really, you know, Matt, you're talking about all these big, big CPG buying their little companies. Well, CPG can't innovate anymore. They just don't have that skill set, And it's really, that gives us the opportunity to fill that hole. And that's always going to be there because these big, big companies just don't have the organizational behavior to take chances, make mistakes, get dirty. Um, you know, to quote Miss Frizzle, um, from magic school bus, but I mean, that's, that's really the key, Ryan. Yeah, and I think that when we're reflecting on it, I think it's fantastic, you guys, and, and the, the thoughtfulness on um, when to say no, when to refocus, um, and then uh, Ian, the thought on agility. And I just wanted to, to speak on agility for a moment because we really talked about you know focus and, and carving out that niche, making sure the niche is the right size, et cetera, but then working hard on it and innovating. But that agility is a really important thing, and we talk about kind of operational performance or operational excellence. You look at the big corps and, and, and one that I'm very, very familiar with, and it's so mired and bogged down with policy and process. They're, they're actually just incapable of moving at great speed. And then that was just the linkage, Richard, you're talking about their failure to be able to actually innovate. They actually just can't. The, the, their systems are built in such a way to, to be counterproductive to that innovation. So the reinforcement of agility and moving quickly and being hypercritical of yourself and innovating is really all a byproduct of also making sure that you hold the core of, of what makes us entrepreneurs in the fir first place, which is speed and agility and constantly looking at ourselves and how we can you know, be better. Some of our best, uh, our best partners are CPG companies and big retailers, like, and they, they don't necessarily move fast, but they can be great partners. They, you know, they're interested in partnering with entrepreneurs because entrepreneurs bring something to the table that you know is you know different from what they do and and and, and so you're kind of by cooperating you can actually build more value ultimately for the consumer um so we we've really been exploring that a lot and, and had some good success uh, partnering up with uh, some of the bigs uh both as our customers and
And in order to to, to um, continue to to give tips for for listeners on things like agility, do you guys have anything that you do in your organizations that you'd be able to pass across to say um, what are some great tips to to stay agile or or what gives you that competitive advantage on innovation, agility, um, people. So I, I'm I mean, just going to jump in real said, quick and, and say the ability to make mistakes and not be super critical. Um, take those as learning events, uh, and but encourage mistakes. Encourage mistakes within yourself. Encourage mistakes within your team. <clears throat> because out of those mistakes come incredible things. Um, <clears throat> it's a drug. Penicillin was a mistake. Uh and look at what that's done for the world. And there's so many examples of that. So it's really important as an entrepreneur, make those mistakes, uh, and, but be hypercritical of yourself too and why you, why you made the mistake, if it was a mistake, why and how you can make it better. Ian, you were going to say something too. I just, I just like that healthy paranoia term. I know it's kind of paranoia sounds like the wrong word, but always having, you know, kind of looking out to, to make sure what's coming and, and what can you continue to adapt so that people will never catch you. You know, I don't even want them to be in the same stratosphere because I want to be able to, 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 to have that sustainable advantage. So I really think that's an interesting, interesting one. The one thing I do want to say is that we can't, I don't think we can actually count on the big guys not innovating because I actually am starting to see them innovate right now. Because I think they realize that they need to do that. Just like we didn't think they'd carry natural products or that they would do this. You're now seeing some of the big CPG companies. They bought up a bunch of companies, but they're now actually doing internal innovation. And you're seeing some products come in. You know, you're seeing everyone from Pepsi to uh, General Mills start launching some of their own new brands. And some are flops, but some are pretty good. And they are making mistakes and learning. So I don't think we can kind of rest on our laurels and count on them not innovating. Once again, we need to be have a healthy paranoia about that. Honesty. Yeah, they're, yeah. They, they, are, uh, they have a lot of data. They're very structured in their process. They have a lot of resources. Uh, and if they get behind something, they can, they can really make some noise. Charles, you, had a, you, you, you described that kind of making a bunch of small mistakes quickly, like failing fast forward. Can yeah, so that? that's what I wanted to talk about was when people um, – say oh make lots of mistakes i tend to agree with it but with caveats um i like to think about um experiments i like to think about having a thesis on what i think will happen with these resources applied in this fashion what time frame blah 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 resource it up and then see if what we actually achieve is similar to what we expected too many people just do stuff and then they don't really know whether that was successful or not because they didn't spend the time to look at what is success, what is good, what is bad. Where would we say go or no go? Where would we say double down, triple down, back off, whatever? So I think it's really important to make mistakes, but it's part of the learning process or how scientists would call you know, uh, experimental uh, uh, process where you actually control the variables, learn from what actually the experiment teaches you, Iterate, 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 and then you come up with a better solution. So that scientific method should be part of the mistake-making process. If it's not, just making mistakes at random and trying and trying to hope to be successful is terribly inefficient. It works, but it's inefficient. So fake experiments. Like disciplined failures. 
I just, I, I really like the way you say that. I never really thought about it that, that way as sort of scientific hypothesis. And, uh, you know, we do all these things, but I never thought about it with that perspective. And just, just that little teeny switch in perspective actually is helping me right now. I like that. So, Charles, how do you control for the variables? Because obviously there's a ton of variables. Yeah, you know what? It's always a, a dance between gut or art and science, right? So we try and use our experience and knowledge to form our thesis that's not really based on a ton of data yet. It's very, very kind of, it's kind of rough, but it's our collective wisdom. And then your experiments will try and be data-driven and look at the actual metrics and you try and set goals based on maybe like benchmarks that you can find. So let's say right now we're really big into digital marketing and direct-to-consumer marketing and so forth. There are a lot of metrics out there for what is really good for what's an average order value or the lifetime value or the customer acquisition cost. Some of these things that we talk about as very, very measurable or, or, or reliable uh, indicators of success, we can actually make goals for them. I want a three to one lifetime value to customer acquisition code. So we can go into a ton of detail down the road on this area here, but it's important to know what you're gonna measure, right? Set your experiment up in a way that you're measuring those variables and then be objective about it. Uh, it's different for every company in every situation, every product even, so. Sort of leads me to, just before we wrap up here, guys, just, uh, I think we gotta do uh, an episode on innovation as well, just because uh, I think that's an entire topic of its own too, but. Um, so really just to wrap up, um, you know, it kind of comes down to the fact that, you know, when you're facing your Goliath, Goliath, test, uh, be agile, be critical and be passionate, um, in what you're doing. And I mean, if you can focus on that, uh, agility with, with critical thinking and using scientific method, set those boundaries. Um, set those guide rails on really what you expect your experiment to result. And then again, if it works, are you doubling down? Are you tripling down? Or if it doesn't work, are you getting rid of it? And if you're going to fail, uh, fail fast, which was alluded to earlier. And, and that's really it. Um, it's, a, it's an incredible journey and, and, and pretty exciting. So um, with that, going to wrap up. Boys, anything, uh, anything left to say? Maybe... What would Ben do when he's facing the Goliath? Uh, I was going to say, and don't forget about the people, right? I mean, it, you know, all these metrics, but like really at the end of the day, it's about the partnerships, the passion, and the people. Uh, that's Ben was sitting down it, it's funny. with the Goliath and turn him into his best buddy. And no longer would he have a Goliath, he have a big brother buddy. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Awesome. And my first, final words of gratitude to you guys. I love, uh, I love the time to spend with you and, uh, and I've learned a lot. So uh, if I'm the only person who has huge takeaways today, thank you very much for sharing. That was amazing. Yeah. That was fun, guys. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks, guys. See you next time. Yeah. Cheers. What Would Ben Do is an original podcast by Ryan Ben, Matt Breach, Charles Chang, Richard Pollock, and Ian Walker, with engineering by Jeremy King and original music by Ian Walker. If you like the show, please subscribe and remember to share, rate, and review. We'll save you a seat at the table. <laughs>